Hi, I'm Steven Zubiago, the CEO and managing partner of Nixon Peabody. I'm connecting with individuals who are leading the way in their industry. As these leaders share their journey with us, we will discuss how to apply their insights into our lives. Today, I'm proud to uh, bring my friend, Jonathan Levine, to speak with you. Jonathan is the co-managing partner of Bain Capital. Thanks so much for, uh, for joining us today. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit uh, about uh, how you and I met and then give us a little bit about your background and your path to leadership. Absolutely. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here talking to you. You and I knew each other tangentially, you may recall, in high school, but you and I really became friends when me and my younger brother were actually getting bullied, waiting to go to class. And um, some students were throwing pennies at us and, and calling us Jewish epithets. And we really didn't know each other that well. There were a lot of people standing around and you stepped in and I'll never forget, you literally just looked at those people and said, we don't do this. And you put your hand up. We grew up in different neighborhoods and never had really interacted. And that gave us a reason to talk. And we became very, very close friends for the rest of high school. And I would visit you at Brown when I was at Columbia. And we've been dear friends ever since. And I am proud to call you a, a friend, incredibly thankful um, for how we met. Appreciate that, Jonathan. Tell us a little bit about your, about your parents growing up, what kind of things they did and what they encouraged you to do. My parents, above all things, dreamed that there, all four of us would go to college and we would graduate without debt. And that was a lot for them. Um, they made sacrifices, but to them, education was the most important thing that we not only got the best education, but the best education for us. And we went to different schools. We didn't all go to the same school. We took different paths in college and our parents were always very, very supportive of that. Even from a young age, I remember my parents engaging in the community, whether it was volunteering at Temple Emanuel, whether it was getting involved in the Jewish Federation, whether it was volunteering for the Little League, just um, always teaching us that um, you have to show up and engage. You shouldn't be a free rider in any community that you live, you play, or you work. The, the volunteerism, you know, clearly you and, and, and your wife, Jeannie, have, uh, have followed forth with that. I know she comes from a strong, similar background, uh, but that was the driving force for a lot of the volunteerism, both yep. in the nonprofits and in and your involvement in politics a little bit as well. It makes you a better leader if you stay grounded in where you came from. And you remember that your job is just not to accomplish the most for you or even you and your family but it is to um, make sure that you're bringing other people up, that you're helping make the whole system better. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And that has drawn my wife and I to things like City Year, which we started practically when it started. We've been volunteering with them since 1990. And um, I was their national chair for many years. I'm chairman emeritus now. They have, they have a core in Providence and they go into the public schools and they try to um, help stem the dropout crisis. Yeah. And they do that with near, -tier, near peer mentors by taking uh, kids 18 to 25 and having them volunteer for a year or two. And they're trying to fix the system 
and make it fairer for everyone. And they've been doing this for, for a long time. And to think about the fact that this is in 30 cities throughout the country. When we started volunteering, they were just in Boston and then New Hampshire and Providence. More systemically, I've engaged um, with the universities that have been so good to me because one, access to education is so important as we talked about. Mm -hmm. And that's both the kind of education people get, pure access, like can they afford it? What can they do when they graduate? Um, and that has been a key area of college affordability of something my wife and I have done, both through the universities we attended and organizations like you Aspire um, in Boston, which helps public school kids figure out how to apply for financial aid and how to get financial aid. And it's those types of things that we think help pay it forward. Appreciate your comment. So uh, I didn't mention, so the high school that Jonathan and I went to is Classical High School in Providence, Rhode Island. It's a college prep high school, the only uh, the only college prep uh, high school in Rhode Island. And uh, Jonathan and I are both active as alums and uh, believe it's important for the city, of course, to be able to maintain itself and grow, to have that access to education. But you're, you're doing that on a much larger uh, scale, which is great. So John, then you get a chance to uh, mentor, you know, students, certainly people in your company. Uh, tell us the types of things you, you, you talk about with, the, with those people in those mentorship uh, relationships. There's no way you can know what's right, what's right for you without some level of experimentation. I thought I was going to go to law school and I attended uh, an investment banking open house, honestly, because they had free food. But I listened and, uh, and I said, oh, this is interesting. Maybe I should defer law school. And my entire um, career path changed. So the first thing is, don't be afraid to look at different things. Secondly, don't pursue something just for the money. More money is, is, is generally better. But if you're doing it only for the money, you will hit a point in your life where you are asking yourself why on earth you are doing it. And it will feel like a burden. Thirdly, this is really important and so many people miss it, particularly in a world of social media, be authentic, be yourself, know who you are. Um, so John, let's talk about uh, the professional services uh, industry. So yours is financial services, mine is, is, is legal, but we're providing professional services. So you, you've been uh, in a, a, a leadership position for a long time. What are the changes you've seen over time and the changes you've seen most recently? Obviously, most recently, what we have seen is we have to all find different ways to collaborate. I think that our businesses and our cultures have been more resilient than we could have possibly imagined when we all closed our offices, our physical offices. And I think that it reminds us that you can have a, a lot of faith in your teams and the resourcefulness in the innovation that I think businesses like ours have seen over the last year staggers the imagination. I think when we're all physically together and we all have a routine, everybody plays a part. The big challenge ahead is, okay, how do we keep the good from this when we go back to being all together, which will be a huge improvement. I think that this is an interesting social experiment, but I think there are some good things we have and mostly we should get be getting back together. One of the trends in our business that has uh, been remarkable is just the global nature of it. And through the pandemic, that has been highlighted way more. If we only sat 
in our offices in the Northeast of the United States observed the pandemic from this, these seats, we would have completely different views on the spread of vaccine methods that can be taken. I mean, spread of the illness, vaccines. And we have the benefit of having seen this in Hong Kong and Shanghai and Seoul and Tokyo and, and Australia and London and all over the globe. And I say that because we have all experienced this a little bit differently. Right. And there's also learnings from that. Our Hong Kong office is open in everyone's back. Our Seoul Korea office never closed. And it is interesting to be on Zooms and you know, you zoom in and you see people sitting in a conference room together and everybody sort of flinches and it's like, oh my goodness, <laughs> there's people together. And I think that no matter what people say about globalization properly, our businesses are interconnected, right? I mean, I'm not sure that you ever imagined that your law offices would be impacted by a virus that started halfway around the world right. and not only impacted your firm, but every single one of your clients. That interconnectedness is something we knew, um, obviously, but the extent of it um, and what we can get out of it, I think is um, a trend that's gonna continue. That, that's really interesting that you point out the international experience and how different it, it is. What, what are you planning here in the, in the United States as, as we enter uh, the spring and hopefully the, uh, the eventual dwindling of the COVID pandemic? How, how are you seeing that impact your business and, and uh, your workforce? So the business has, has moved on. You've seen what is going on in the markets. We did close to 100 private investments last year. We invested half of our distressed debt funds globally. And our business ranges from private equity to credit, life sciences, ventures, public equity. We have a social impact fund, um, a real estate funds. So we have a wide array of businesses, US, Europe, and Asia, Australia. So on the business side, we've been able to make it work. I think one insight that we had is we said early on, enable people with any technology they need at any level of the organization. So we were fortunate to be in a position where we sent out thousands of pieces of whether it was cameras or monitors or new computers or things to boost up people's inter uh, internet. Um, in terms of uh, bringing people back to the office, we are very much in listening mode. Our big challenge right now is trying to make sure that as we come back, to offices all over the world, how we keep the culture that in, in mentorship that is created in person, yet still recognize some of the benefits and some of the ways we've tested the organization to provide more flexible work schedules, to provide more flexible scheduling and things like that. Those are helpful comments. So we, we did find that um, our, our technology has really stood the, the test of time. Uh, we were able to, to get out of the office and get people working remotely very quickly and then followed up with delivery of tech as needed. Uh, and it was it was very helpful. That's something that we're, we're proud of. Um, and specifically appreciate your comments on listening mode. Let's talk a little bit about more about maintaining the culture though. I do think early on, whatever decisions we make about all being in the office, that the senior people lead by example, whatever the social contract is 
how many days or how we're going to do it because senior people have more flexibility just yeah. naturally did before the pandemic. So we all have to lead by example. If we're supposed to show up, we should show up. Um, if we're not supposed to be there, one of the things we said early on when we were trying to figure out is if all the senior people keep showing up, um, everybody will come in. So we were like, we are, we are working from home. We recommend you work from home until it was obviously became mandated. Secondly, it truly is actually talking to people on all levels and understanding what helped and what connectivity did we do for the better. I think that some forced bonding that we've done on Zoom, whether it was Zoom drinks or trivia night or you know, um, book, uh, book club with the analysts or things like that. There's no reason those things can't continue afterward and, and in person or partially in person. Our culture has always been show up at the offices, fly from office to office. There's something to be said for getting the personal contacts and the dinners and things. I remember the first big, big transaction we did out of our London office. I actually I didn't have to, but I actually flew to London to be sitting in the room with the team, even though we could have easily done it by conference call at the time. And most of the decision makers were sitting in Boston. And I said, no, I want to go be sitting next to the, the, the people on the line. We can't lose sight of what that means to people, that we have to remind people showing up for retirement parties, for going away things, for onboarding new people. We now have people who have worked at the firm for a year who have never met anyone. And I do think we have to fix that. Oh, really good stuff. Um, Jonathan, let's uh, switch to a second to some community issues. There's been a lot of uh, social justice issues. As a CEO of a national and international company, talk to me a little bit about you know, what you see your responsibility is on these types of issues. We think that our responsibility to, is to stand up and be counted where appropriate, to make sure that our employees and our colleagues all know that we stand with them, but not to be necessarily political on every issue. We don't think things like voting, guns, the Muslim ban, those aren't political. Those are things to do with being an American and, and, rights and, and what is right and wrong. We need to be part of the solution going forward and we've gotten very involved in something called the Foundation for Business Equity. So we recognize that there is a national issue we need to address, and we need to make sure that within our own communities, we are standing up, being counted, and actually helping to effectuate change um, and leading by example. Business leaders, community leaders need to, to lean in a little bit. I'm new in the, the, the CEO role, and um, navigating these issues has been one of the newer things for me. It's very challenging to hit the right tone. And, and of course, you know, we, we want to defend the things we believe in. We believe we have a strong culture as a firm. Tell me, tell me a little bit about the advice you'd give people entering the in, investment realm, uh, the types of challenges they'll have, the type of skills and, and, and what you think uh, that will entail for them. I think it's really important that people understand that nobody knows how to do these jobs uh, day one. And when we hire you out of school, there is no expectation that any business school or any law school or any engineering school or any liberal arts school that we're going to hire you from is going to prepare you to do the job. What it will prepare you to do is learn and know how to listen and know how to 
practice self-development. I think that that is the most important thing. People who show up as know-it-alls generally aren't people who succeed in the long run. There are so many times in our analyst class that I explicitly talk to them about this, that um, we have so many people who go from worst to first or from first to worst, and that we don't make career decisions on people based on how they did in their first deal, their first year. You know, we recognize that it's, it's, a, it's a trajectory that we're looking for. One other thing that I, I, I think I should mention is in the wake of George Floyd and the new civil rights movement of the, um, that, that, that has emerged, we have spent a lot of time rethinking the way we hire, how we hire, what, you know, what our processes are, the schools we attend, how we provide mentorship programs, should we be starting earlier, and really been working with some terrific organizations like MLT um, to help us think about how we can be better at being a truly inclusive organization that starts with recruiting from a very, very broad funnel and not just um, effectively looking in the mirror every time you go to hire. It's uh, well, well said. So I'm here with uh, Jonathan Levine, the co-managing partner of uh, Bain Capital. Jonathan, we're going to go to the rapid fire questions now. Are you ready for that? Sure. So if you weren't in the financial sector, uh, what do you think would be a good, another good profession for you? I think I would have enjoyed being a journalist. I uh, like the, 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 the fighting for right and wrong. I like discovering truth. And um, I think journalists play just an incredibly important role in our society. So what's the, what's the one thing you, you really need to have every day? I think I need to make sure that uh, I check in with, uh, with the family. With, it's time with Jeannie, Allie, and Emily. Um, you know, one of the beauties of text is that we have had a family group text that's been going since, since that's been going since the kids are in seventh grade. They're in their twenties now, uh, and um, it's a great way to make sure every, we're checking in on everybody. And, uh, and finally, which, which you, where's your favorite place to be? Where, where do you like to be? Uh, I I like to be wherever my family is. We can enjoy each other's time sitting, you know, on a park bench in New York City on a beach in St. John, or just sitting in our backyard during COVID. One of the things that I think we've all rediscovered is uh, time with our families uh, and how much we all lost in our busy lives. You know, I've had dinner with my wife and, um, you know, every day for the last year and, that, and lunch and, that is something that has not existed for the previous 28 years. How valuable those moments are. And each of our daughters has lived with us for several months on end and as they've been working remotely. And just that's super, super special. The pandemic has, it's has had its difficulties, but there's, there's been the blessings uh, as well. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for sharing the wisdom. Always good to catch up with you. Thank you for listening to me Steve Zubiago on Nixon Peabody's Leading the Way. If you liked today's episode, please share it on social media and subscribe wherever you get your podcast.